Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. When I was looking for a publisher for my first book, I was lucky to have ended up with two offers one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring Publishing, which at the time was just a small publisher in Scotland run by four people with a love of great books and a love of our field. I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring has joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers' Integrative Health Singing Dragon imprint. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check out their long list of great titles, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. We thank you again, Handspring. And we have another sponsor to roll off with. We're going to tell you about the Back Jam. I hope you'll join Whitney and I for the Back Jam, who will be presenting together with some amazing teachers like Benny Vaughn, Tom Myers, Ruth Werner, Judith Aston, James Waslowski, Diane Lee is going to be there. Each of us are going to share some of our favorite ideas for hands-on work with the Back, and you can register now at bit.ly bit.ly slash thinkingback slash thinkingback or at the link in the show notes. It starts live on May 1st or you can get it by recording anytime if you're listening to this far in the future. I'm looking forward to that. Whitney, how about you? I am too. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get back at it and it's going to be good to another for another jam. Thanks to Diane for yeah. Diane Matkowski for putting it together. It should be great. And what are we talking about today? Well, um, it's that winter season and that season of winter sports activities. And oh. um, I think we'll talk about some things like that. Unfortunately, one of us had a recent mishap with winter sports activities. Not naming any names. And but that, that would was, not be me. That was me. It <laughs> was Till here. Um, should I tell you about it? Tell me about it. Tell me what happened there. I was skiing. It was the day before my birthday. There was fresh snow. I was with a friend. It was beautiful. And we just kept doing harder and harder things. And she's just a really graceful skier. So I was, mm -hmm. I was proud of myself for... Uh, keeping up with her until we got to this really steep one with lots of fresh snow on it and lots of bumps. And she just danced her way down it. And I was like, I can do that. So I danced through a couple of turns and then caught my ski and twisted my, uh, uh, twisted my leg. Well, yikes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And that's become a pretty significant injury for it's, this instance from what I understand. It is. It's yeah. been my focus for, it's been about a week now, focus ever since. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there was a loud pop. It hurt. Yeah. And, uh, it was in fact, immediate nausea too. Mm. Oh, mm -hmm. It was like, I saw stars. I almost threw up. It was that kind of moment. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious though, when you had the loud pop, was yeah. it immediately painful? And that's when the feeling of nausea came on or what was the relationship between nausea? Was there a serious pain immediately or just? Good question. It was, it was pretty quick. Mm -hmm. If not immediate, yeah. it was pretty quick. It was mid-turn. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of uh, uh, sickened to a stop. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty clearly hurting, and I was pretty clearly sick at that point. So yeah. it, was, it was within milliseconds, if not at the, you know, at the same time. Yeah. You know, I hear that frequently described as a symptom with these types of injuries. I don't know what the mechanism is there. Do you know why right. no, nausea I not. Uh, no, I, initiates I, there? Yeah, I've actually had that experience uh, with the same knee. So maybe it's just a traumatic reset. You mm -hmm. know, it was actually that first time I had, I was playing volleyball and kicked at a ball. This volleyball is like volleyball inside and you're using your feet as well. Mm -hmm. So I kicked at the ball and missed. And so hyper forcible hyperextension of the lower leg on the yeah. same knee. And the same, like it didn't pop, but I was sick to my stomach immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's no nerve that I know of that goes from the knee to the to the belly. Yeah. Gastrogenu nerve is not one of those that I know of. But no, it's I've heard that too. I'm Maybe sure it's, it's another one of those 
in instances where our brain says, Hey, I know how I can make this person get still immediately. <laughs> that was maybe that was it. Yeah, I was still. So I thought it was a great chance to actually talk to you. I've been diving into this I mean, kind of embracing this whole cart full of lemons. It's turned out to be, you know, yeah. And, uh, writing every morning about it and then doing some fun movement training mm -hmm. around rehab. But then I thought it's a great chance to pick your brain too and share yeah. some thoughts about this. Yeah. Um, so let's let's so dive in. A little yeah, bit. tell me what do you what do you know about these acute sprains or injuries, these ligamentous acute injuries of the knee? Yeah, so let's let's just take a quick sort of survey tour across the what I often refer to and lots of people do too. This is the big four of the ligaments of the knee. There are four main stabilizing ligaments of the knee that are designed, and you know, I always talk about this. Um, in, in relationship of thinking about what your knee is actually trying to do. It's like if you take two pencils, for example, and try to balance them end to end on their eraser points and then hold a weight down on them, that's about the level of stability. Well, not quite that bad, but that's kind of like- That the sounds like the picture here. I got it. Yeah. So for those watching the video there, we got a, uh, you happen to have two pencils there. Perfect. So that's- <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> two, uh, two cylindrical two objects. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So two cylindrical surfaces, you know, with shafts balancing on their endpoints together. That's not a really stable arrangement at all. Mm -hmm. And so it, it goes to these four primary stabilizing ligaments of the knee to give you a great deal of that stability. Now, of course, they're not the only things that do that, but they're they're the big ones that really do a great deal of that. So injuries to these ligaments, we refer to, of course, as sprains, SP, not strains, which that is an injury to muscle tendon units. So remember that a sprain is a damage to, or you know, usually some degree of overstretching of that ligament where it's been exposed to high tensile force loads, pulling, in other words, and those sprains are graded in three degrees, first degree or mild, second degree or moderate, and third degree as severe. Okay, sprains and, are, are thought to be primarily ligament, while strains would be a muscle, muscular, myoskeletal, uh, myofascial yeah. rather unit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, and that would include tendons in the in the myofascial tendons. unit as well. Okay. So, right. we don't see a lot of tendon strains, of course, you know, mm. sometimes when there's really severe loads that, that may have a tendon avulsion or something like that, but you know, it's not Achilles as common tendon, as yeah. Achilles tendon rupture. Yeah. But you see yeah. those at the musculotendinous junction a lot and mm -hmm. really severe ones when, I mean, a very, very high force loads, you know, causing avulsions where a tendon rips away from its attachment point, but that's, those are pretty bad. So it takes yeah. those really high force loads to do that. But but at the knee or and the ligaments around the body, of course, the ligaments are designed to maintain stability. But those ligament fibers have a, a moderate degree of give to allow some degree of flexibility before they get damaged there. So yeah. um, and then of course, you know, when it's too much, that's when we get the the sprain injuries. So real quickly, just kind of quick review of those main ligaments. We have the ACL and the PCL inside the knee. So that's the anterior cruciate ligament. ACL, cruciate, yep. um, is it Latin or or cross? I believe cruciate, it's Latin. Cruciate, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Can you remember my uh, word derivation thing? So uh, Latin for cross. Um, so the anterior cruciate and posterior cruciate cross inside the knee joint itself. So anterior cruciate goes from the anterior tibia back angling inside the knee to the posterior femur. And its primary function is to resist anterior movement of the tibia in relation to the femur. So we've got a model up here so we can see uh, that tibia. Now, if it moves forward in relation oh, to the femur. To push it forward. Yeah, we can't yeah. because this has these crossed ligaments in there. That's right. Yeah. Ligaments trying to show you. Okay. So we're trying to yeah. demonstrate that with that little knee model there. But imagine <laughs> if the tibia, the proximal tibia moves forward in relation to the femur. That's the motion that that ACL is trying to resist. Right. Okay. And uh, ACL injuries, this is mainly because we move most of our lifetimes in a forward direction. And uh -huh. the, the way the forces are with jumping, landing, stopping, turning, and all that kind of stuff, it puts a very high force load on that anterior tibia. And remember, too, like when you land from a jump or when you suddenly stop running, yeah. the quadriceps engage in a very high force load contraction pulling on the anterior tibia. And that's one of the mm -hmm. things that causes ACL injuries is that very high 
anterior translation of the tibia there. So that, they're common injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You yeah, can see that patellar tendon in the image there coming yeah. across and attaching to the front side of the tibia. So you imagine when that pulls really hard, that's it's going pulling to pulling that thing forward, yep, huh? Pulling yep. that thing forward. Yeah. So uh so it's I hope opposite. I didn't do that. I hope I didn't do that. And one of the PTs I talked to since it says, well, when there's a pop, I've almost always seen it to be anterior cruciate. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I don't, I hope it's not that case for me. Yes. Yeah, so you're going to have to get a, a greater sort of evaluation to yes. find out for sure about that. Yes. Which is yeah. another story. We'll see if we have time for. Yeah. So, uh, and um, so uh, the other inside the knee is the posterior cruciator PCL. Uh -huh. That goes from the posterior aspect. You can see it's kind of like on the back side of that little model right there. Um, that PCL going from the posterior part of the tibia, angling up inside to the medial condyle of the femur, but going towards the anterior direction of the femur. And it's going to resist the opposite motion, mm -hmm. posterior translation of that okay, tibia in relation to the femur. Yeah. yeah. Will that knee bend into full flexion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here's a common mechanism of PCL injury. Yeah, if you hold it like um, just uh, sort of so it's um, a right angle to the camera there. Zzz, like we'll that right there. Yeah. So common mechanism of PCL injuries is when you're sitting in a car as a passenger, uh -huh. for example, and mm. you have a head-on collision and the like tibia the is thrust against the dashboard and that pushes that it's tibia backwards. Backwards, yeah. exactly, just like that. So that's our mm. common mechanism there. Or and you're so kicking at a volley ball. I'm kicking at a volley ball. There or you football, go. Com, yeah, common football injury to cook, kick and miss. And yeah. that extreme uh, hyperextension it doesn't describe that backwards tibia movement like you were talking about, but basically overstretches that posterior side of the yeah. arrangement and yep. can tear or rupture that. Yeah. And sometimes uh, obstructions of, of anatomical design inside the femur lend to more frequent injuries. You know, sometimes you can have bony uh -huh. projections or things in there. And some of those cruciate ligaments can get bow strung across the top of those bony protuberances inside the knee joint and make you more susceptible to those types of things. So, um, and again, there's nothing we can obviously do about that, but that is sometimes a cause. And more common in people born female at birth because of the different shaped femoral notch. Have you heard that? Yep. Yep. That or as well as the, the increasing... Um, valgus forces on the knee in females, and we'll talk about that a little later as well. Okay, so, I won't, yeah. I won't uh, spoil that punchline. Yeah. Okay, so our last two, uh, the lateral, these are the collateral ligaments that are on the collateral, meaning both co, co sort of on each side, collateral. Actually, they should be, yeah. It's a little confusing to consider the uh, collateral ligaments because one's on the medial side, so that's a little bit... Um, yeah confusing terminology wise, but we have the lateral collateral ligament on the outside or lateral side of the knee going from the lateral epicondyle of the femur down to the fibular head. The now back. it's a little bit um, kind of smaller. You can see in that um, diagram right there of, of our mm -hmm. knee of attaching to the fibular head. And uh, Till, can you turn that around so you can see that gap between the lateral collateral ligament and the side of the knee and the femur and tibia there? Pretty good degree of gap right there. And uh, it has to, has to go wide at the fibula. Sorry, exactly, to get out to yeah. the fibula. And that becomes yeah. an important factor in looking at a number of injuries there because we're going to see on the opposite side with the MCL that we don't have that kind of gap. And that's one of the reasons it gets injured more frequently there. So um, last one on the medial side, and this is your problem structure predominantly, I think from yes. your injury you mentioned, is the medial yes. collateral ligament. So a major factor with this structurally to consider too, if you'll... Uh, Look at that medial meniscus. You can see, I'm excuse me, the medial collateral ligament. You can don't, see how. Don't say meniscus. I don't say meniscus. Why? Because we don't want to have that involved. Huh? I don't want to have my meniscus involved, but that's okay. Go ahead. There's this thing between your tibia and your femur. I'm not going to call it anything, but your okay. medial collateral ligament is attached to it. Okay. Yes. So yes. that's one of the reasons we often see problems in that thing associated uh -huh. with MCL injuries. Okay. Yep. So there yep. is attachment to that medial meniscus. So let's hope it's not involved in this instance there. So it is common. It is uh, frequently commonly. I don't know how frequent we'll find out injured. The meniscus can be together with a medial collateral. Yeah. Because of those the mechanisms of injuries, but both those places under strain and the medial collateral is attached to that. Yeah. The anterior medial horn of the meniscus. So I'm hoping it's not that. Certainly. We'll, yeah. We'll find out. Yeah. 
And of course, you know, we also said earlier that we were hoping that the ACL wasn't involved. But if you ever right. come across the term terrible, the terrible triad, uh-huh. you know, that is a a um, term in reference to the fact that there's frequently injury involving the ACL, the MCL, and the medial meniscus together. So yep. the terrible triad, they call that. Yep. So I'm hoping for a terrible single. Yes, that's right. We'll go for a single, not a triple. Yeah. Yes. So one other thing I want to kind of um, clarify here before we start talking a little bit more in depth about your MCL injury is two terms that are a little bit confusing for people that are important to understand for, especially for these collateral ligament injuries. And that's the terms valgus and varus because they uh-huh. describe the type of forces that cause these types of, of injuries. So the term um, valgus, for example, is defined as um, a bony orientation or an orientation where the distal end of a bony segment deviates in a lateral direction. So valgus. Distal end deviates in a lateral direction. So that's a valgus angulation. Now this gets really confusing around the knee yeah. because we often think of like a valgus angulation of the knee as somebody who is knock-kneed where your yeah. Yeah. two knees come together uh-huh. And well, you think, well, like the femur is going toward the uh, midline. That's not a lateral thing. But the, the point Distal is around edge. the knee, uh-huh. it's always named for the tibial angulation. Tibia so is angling out away from the midline, getting lateral. Yeah. Tibias are farther apart, they're distal end, knees are closer together, valgus. Yeah. Valgus. So just remember, it's the distal end of the bony segment deviates in a lateral direction with a valgus force and a medial direction with a varus force. So that would be the person who is bow-legged and has the distal end of their tibia deviating medially. Yep. And I had a valgus stress applied to my knee Mm -hmm. from my weight bearing down on it in that funny cockeyed turned position on that bump. It also forced external rotation. Yep. And uh, that's, you know, if, if you're way into it, and certainly good physical therapists do this, you might really ask someone about the mechanism of their injury, really ask them to describe it. You got to be a little careful with that because it can be, it can have what Peter Levine calls the the traumatic attraction effect where all they want to talk about is that moment and all the, you know, it gets to be its own thing and it actually can be a little bit uh, upsetting or re-traumatizing to talk too much, focus too much on that injury. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you get someone to describe the position they're in or the force that hurt, you can often get a clue as to what might be injured. Not so that we can assess as manual therapists, but so that we can strategize, you could say. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's that's an important part of of getting some ideas of how forces may have impacted those structures and possibly led to those those injuries. That is certainly helpful. And as as you noted, that that catching an edge with your ski and you know, causing your body weight to be pressing in on your knee as your knee is bent inward is a really common injury in skiing. Um, yeah. So it's, it's something that we see uh, a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, orthopedic physicians in your area in Colorado there who've made their living out of <laughs> ski there's injuries. Plenty yeah. of people ask about it. Yeah. yeah, also football or soccer, getting hit on the outside of your leg, having that inside forcibly stretched open. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's another common mechanism injury. Yeah. Well, you want me to talk about what I've been learning about the MCL? A little Let's bit? talk about that. Yeah, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I, you know, I knew what we just talked about and have treated my own share of skiing injuries uh, on the MCL here. But uh, what I really got into this time is the fact that there are pretty distinct layers in that uh, MCL. It is much bigger. You can even see on these plastic models than the lateral mm-hmm. version. But on the dissection models, if you look at it, it's huge. It's like a big, you know, it's basically continuous with the joint capsule. It lies superficial to the joint capsule. It's out of it, but there's fibers that connect it and various other fascial connections into the surrounding muscles in a layered fashion. And there's even named portions. So like the deep part is the part of the medial collateral ligament that's right up next to the joint capsule. The superficial part is a little broader and has typical attachments. And then there's another little sheath that comes in from behind from say the semitendinosus and things like that that attaches to it, which is called the posterior oblique ligament. Mm -hmm. And these people that are naming such things. And I'll bet that's what I hurt just based on what I can palpate on myself. 
and uh, where it is, and then also what what motions hurt still because external rotation still hurts mm -hmm. unweighted. If it yeah. was weighted external rotation, that's a, that's a meniscus sign. Mm -hmm. But uh, un, but especially unweighted is turning my foot, you know, sitting with my knee bent, turning my toe out a little bit. That's painful right there where I got hurt. Yeah, and that's um, you know that points to that part of that ligament. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah, and that's an important sort of clarification and evaluation thing. And this is sometimes done in in, in the orthopedic evaluation and trying to identify discrepancies between meniscal and ligamentous injuries. And so, for yeah. example, that ligament structure and the surrounding capsule are both pulled when you do that uh, external rotation movement of the knee, yeah. whether that's weighted or not. Right. So, for example, when you do it unweighted and it hurts mm -hmm. and you do it weighted and it hurts, mm -hmm. that's a probably a pretty good indication that you're looking at meniscal and or capsular involvement I'm because check that as one you more noted time. yeah all right doing it live for those not seeing the video we're doing a live <laughs> I'm standing up yeah. and I'm you can't see much it's off camera but I'm just turning yeah to see yeah sure enough it's it's you know it's the open chain version where I just turn my foot out hurts at least as much if not more yeah okay so Who because knows? it hurts with both of those that yeah. would be more indicative of ligamentous and capsular involvement mm -hmm. if the meniscus, you're not uh, putting weight on the meniscus in the unweighted version. Mm -hmm. So you cross-reference those two strategies to kind of get an idea. This sounds more like it. And uh, back to two, I want to mention just something you were talking about with the structure there of all the fibrous connections and sort of interwoven fibers yeah. between the capsule yeah. and the medial collateral ligament itself is probably one of the reasons that it hurts so much because we do know the capsule is very richly innervated. Yep. So, so tensile loads feel, on damaged capsular fibers. Yeah. You know, yeah. Make that hurt a lot more. Make that hurt. It's yeah. sensitive so that we can sense, so that we can mm -hmm. feel what position an angle and angle and forces are going through our knee joint. Yeah. So then when they get injured, they hurt even more. Yeah. I'll see if I can put a picture of those layers in the show notes because I found a really good open source one. Mm -hmm. that, that would be great. Really cool. Yeah. And then there's the valgus stress test, which mm -hmm. my primary care physician very carefully did with me. She was very gentle. That was nice. I appreciated that. But that's a test where you essentially line up the bones of the leg. Maybe you'll bend them a tiny bit. And then you'll, let's see, put this in the right way. You'll put a little bit of stress on the inside of the tibia to force the joint into a gentle uh, valgus position. So valgus stress test is like trying to gap the inside of the knee joint in a more or less straight position. And it's thought that in a straight position, correct me if I'm wrong, Whitney, uh, you don't want to feel any give at all. That means, uh, you know, uh, form, force, closure, everything's locked together, but a slightly bent knee position, uh, there'll be a little bit of gapping there. Uh, Non-painful if in a normal person. Yeah. In my case, it's a painful gapping. Yeah. And just keep in mind too, you have to think about who your client is and other factors in your history when you're making those determinations, because, um, we, you know, we did an episode where we talked, um, a while back and I can't remember our episode number about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and yeah. hypermobility in joints. And a person with something like that will have yeah. normal, hypermobility that might seem like a positive valgus stress test, but you test the unaffected right. side and it's got just as much movement. So just so because the there's some sides. movement there, mm -hmm. make sure that you're you're, you're making a, a proper determination about that. And you can make that test a bit more sensitive and accurate too if you make sure that your hand is right across the midline of the joint because that puts the force right across the area where that ligament is trying to resist it. And so you can feel smaller degrees of, of movement and instability in there. Like your fulcrum hand, you say? Exactly. Yeah. Be right up there on the femur yeah. in the midline of that joint. It's yeah. a tricky test if to get the feel for if you've never done it. I don't know if you could even learn it from a podcast, but it's uh it's an interesting one to attempt to get a feel for it because yeah. you start to feel how much how much variation there's in people's knees. Mm -hmm. And like Whitney said, it really is the relative measure of left and right that's probably more indicative. Yeah. Significant than just the amount of absolutely. Yeah. If you if you're curious about that, I'm sure there's um dozens probably, uh, since it's such a commonly performed orthopedic test, there's probably dozens of YouTube yeah. videos out and that's around right. about performing the valgus stress test. But I, I have noted over the years that 
a lot of times that hand position makes a big difference um, in terms of Absolutely. being able to feel finer degrees of movement than you might normally feel if you're just um, not placing your hands in exactly the right places. And and it could alter the way that that, that force is, is being felt on the knee there. Now, uh, don't let me go too far down this rabbit hole, but w- drawer test for the ACL, mm-hmm. the bent knee, push gently pushing and pulling, or maybe firmly pushing and pulling on the tibia to see if we can uh, essentially translate, anteriorly and posteriorly translate the tibia against the femur. Um, tests ACL, PCL uh, resistance. It's That evokes pain for me in the painful spot. They're superficial on the medial side of my knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, again, I'm hoping it's not my ACL. Yeah. They're not, because they're not always painful. It's not always that sensate. And so you don't always even... The patient or the subject doesn't always feel pain. You might just feel a bunch of movement there as the practitioner. Yeah, and the the like you said, Whitney, the capsule and those ligaments themselves resist all kinds of movements. So I'm hoping that that drawer test is just pulling on my other injured structures. Yeah, and with not, it, sh- not showing me an injured ACL. Yeah, well, it certainly is pulling some of those capsular tissues a little bit, and and again. Lots of people have, you know, minor degrees of overstretching, like in a grade one and grade two, grade two minus uh, sprain to their ACL and never have to do anything about it other than just give it some time to heal and be careful with it. So um, once it's more severe, then you may need some other types of intervention. But a lot of those things can can sort of get better on their own with minor levels of, of therapeutic interventions. Maybe we should talk more about treatment. Yeah. Jump to that part in the outline there. It's like uh, what I, in the first guy I saw and what I remembered from my notes is that this MCL very frequently heals if entered. It regenerates. It's outside of the joint capsule. So it's vascular. It's under, just under the skin. And there's lots of, say, circulatory activity there, lymph activity, things like that that can help it heal. And it really commonly, especially if it's just, a, you know, partial tear, things like that, regenerates. Even a complete tear can regenerate, often does. In fact, surgical repair of this ligament is rare. I've been reading and listening to it because it's so good at regenerating itself. Yeah. And the times that surgery is needed is when the one of the ends of the ruptured ligament has been seriously displaced, has gotten pulled way back into somewhere or even tucked, or it can even get caught in the meniscal space, they say, things like that. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, if they see that on MRI, the surgeon will go in and just basically reposition it, give it a head start to healing itself. But this isn't typically a surgical repair. There is a lot of news, which is good news for tell. Uh, There's uh, also, it's been fun to read about the controversies about, do you brace it? Do you move it? Which, Mm -hmm. and how much of which, and there's, there's the whole spectrum of opinions and in, in very qualified and, and intelligent people who work with, say, high-level athletes and different kinds of sports practices that you'll find the whole spectrum from saying total immobilization for at least a couple of weeks so that that knitting can happen, mm-hmm. so that repair can begin to happen, to others to say, no, start movement right away. Start movement, at least a little bit of movement right away. Yeah. No one is saying don't brace it. And for sure, once I got a brace on that, I was so much more comfortable. Yeah. Just just neurologically to stand and to begin to trust it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh the question is, do you keep it totally mobile? Or do you allow it to move a little bit? I'm of the movement camp, although mm-hmm. I'm not trying to develop a range of motion yet in my own thinking through yeah. this. I'm I am keeping it mobile so that there's some layer glide between all these different layers involved and some normalization of the sensations and some perfusion of the fluids, those re- those great things we get from mm-hmm. movement, but not trying to push it yet into much uh, stretch or different ranges of motion. Some sports rehab people who are, their main measure is return to play. How quickly can we get the athlete back in the game? Yeah. They they tend to emphasize being careful about angular ranges, like not letting it ex- fully extend for the first mm-hmm. week, yeah. Because it's it they start to heal into a shorter position when slightly bent, and that's good because you want all the support and shortness you can get there in the healing process. And then gradually they allow the they turn dial back the brace so that the knee can extend bit by bit as the weeks go on. 
Yeah. I want to backtrack for just a moment back to the testing procedure that you did with the person you said that initially saw you and did the valgus stress test with you. Did they feel or perceive uh, additional movement in your affected side? I don't know that she did. It was pretty clearly pain and she didn't push it. Once once I was like jumping on the table, she stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we'll consider that, you know, a positive indicative of, I mean, yeah, of the damage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. you may or may not always feel. And again, we're back to levels of severity. And this is an important clarifying factor because I think this whole argument about to move or not to move also has to take into consideration, well, how bad is the injury? Because the worse it is, in my opinion, the worse it is, the more you want to stick with some degree of immobilization earlier on for just for protection to keep from really causing a a much more serious damage to that. If it's not that bad, then earlier mobilization and movement is, I think, advantageous. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I want to talk about, say, the personal impact too, but certainly the alarm factor of just my autonomic nervous system being freaked out about this thing hurting again. Yeah. was a sight to see from my mm-hmm. perspective. It was really, I mean, the nausea would come back, fear, sweating, huh. things like that. When I think about having to get up yeah. and put weight on it or like moving around super carefully, things like that, because the slightest little twist, of course, would send me through the roof. Yeah. Kinds of things. I, I like I mentioned, uh, writing about it. I wrote something every morning for three or four mornings and posted it. And I put stuff on Instagram and someone said something interesting. Um, got lots of nice well wishes. Thanks a lot. That was, anyway, that's, that's like a whole story there too that maybe I'll get to. But someone, I'm looking for it here. Oh, here we go. Can you define your mental impact on the healing process? It seems the mental functional utility gets lost when the physical body takes the main stage. Someone said, hey, what's going on on the psychological level? I heard that to read. Because we can really um, get so focused on the physical that that got lost for her. And um, that was a great question to ponder, too, for me, just as a person, as a practitioner. Because I'm way technical. I'm way into this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was comforting in many ways to focus on the technical part because it was upsetting, for goodness sake. Sure. I was really... I mean, it's it's funny to talk about too, because not only was it upsetting then, but then later it got embarrassing how upsetting it was because there's so many more serious things people go through all the time. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, a first world ski, Colorado skier problem yeah. in some ways. But uh, the fact that it was really upsetting, I mean, just lying there in bed the first morning, this happened to be my birthday morning too, going, wow, I'm not going to be able to run for a while or a walk or I'm supposed to go to Asia for a month. Am I going to be able to do that? So I'm waking up facing the loss of these things that are important to me. Yeah. Just, uh, you could say hanging out in the, in the heart of grief. Mm-hmm. For that moment. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it was yeah. just really uh, eye opening or reminding of like, of course, but like, wow, even something like this can really send somebody for a loop. Yeah. Like, and that's a real important, um, point, I think, to take in mind for us to think about when we are working with our clients doing all kinds of things where they're trying to address problems and how they have affected their own lives in lots of ways that we just don't even know um, and may not know, you know, this really prevents somebody from doing the things that they love to do. This prevents them from picking up their grandkids or this makes them not be able to do the one thing in their life that helps them de-stress or whatever it is. And those are real uh, serious factors that impact their well-being. The psychological landscape has a definite shape to it with highs and lows, and it's not in proportion to the physical landscape because something small, like Till not being able to run for a couple of weeks, whatever it's going to be, could have a huge internal uh, effect. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's a great reminder too. It, it's yeah. just, you know, it's a great reminder that, wow. You know, of course, it felt better to start to get, get better and start better to get some information, get some perspective on the thing. But that just really hit home too is just how emotional these things can be yeah as well yeah it was interesting too that i i uh, just to reflect back on my process of the hour after i got injured took me about an hour to get down the mountain and in retrospect i totally should have let my friend go get the ski patrol and get Mm -hmm. me out of there on a toboggan but i was like i was 
still skiing in my mind. I was uh -huh. still had this momentum that I was going and I was going to ski. And I was like, no, it's, I mean, I was like, pop, that's probably just like, I don't know what that was. Maybe my kneecap moved funny or something mm -hmm. like that. It was like completely finding ways around the fact in my mind that I was probably had a tissue injury that needed care. Yeah. And so even finding my way back onto my feet, feeling like, oh, I can turn right. But, oh, no, I can't turn left at all. And so just finding my way down through that was just reflecting on it, just how my brain wouldn't let myself even go to the fact that I was injured. Yeah. And those are fascinating aspects of, you know, that whole piece of, of how the pain itself can be so contextual for, like, there was a pretty strong driving force in you that I got to get down the mountain and I got to get down the mountain by myself, you know. Well, it was sort of the, it was by myself part. If it had just been down the mountain, I would have called ski patrol. But it's yeah. like, no, I'm not that badly hurt. I'm sure, yeah. but I'm not going to yeah. be kind of thing. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And then the switch from being the the practitioner to the patient or the, you know, the alleviator of other people's suffering and pain to being the one who's in pain. It's yeah. just a... I've, you know, I'm old enough to have been on that side of the table a bunch of times, but it's just always humbling. It's always so humbling to realize, oh, this is like real stuff when yeah. people get hurt. It has all these different impacts, mm -hmm. the emotional, the effects on your livelihood, the effects on the meaning you get out, meaning you get out of life, your own uh, invincibility or mortality, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, and no. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be, yeah, the story wouldn't be complete if I didn't mention um, like the medical system. We have an amazing medical system in his country, in Colorado, and it's really frustrating sometimes too. It is yeah. so frustrating. Yeah. Like uh, I was, Loretta went off to a class. My wife went off to a class that day, so there wasn't anybody around. I finally got someone to answer at the care facility I use. And they said, oh, yeah, we're booked up until like uh, middle of February. But if you think it's an emergency, you can go to the emergency room. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, my God. So I have a chance to wait a few weeks or, yeah. or go to the emergency room, which I yeah. don't know what they do for me there anyway. Uh, so I, she said, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I see there's just there's an opening here 45 minutes away from you. Can you get there? And I thought, OK, I can borrow my friend's car. I can probably limp out there. I'm going to brace it up really good. I'm going to get myself there. So then I'm doing that. I'm realizing, wait a minute, I'm driving to this this instant appointment that opened up. And I realized mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can walk from the car to the front desk to even check in. Yeah. Uh, so I called back and waited on hold and finally got someone. And they're like, oh, we don't have any way to talk to the facility, sir, uh, you know, to see if they can come out and help you or anything like that. So I was like, oh, my God, this is like a simple thing. You know, like, how do yeah. you mm -hmm. even get yourself and she said, first thing she said, of course, was like, oh, you can ask at the front desk for a wheelchair. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's not, <laughs> that's you not get to the front desk to ask right. to it. Yeah. It was like that kind of loop of, you know, right. she's here flipping the pages in her manual to look for the response to give me. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like you're talking to chat GBT on the phone, oh, yeah, like how to like fix that. your knee. Right? Exactly. Yeah. But just, uh, I mean, laughing about it now, but in that moment when someone's hurt or upset or doesn't know what's going on, just to, understand the impact of having to deal with the medical system mm -hmm. even uh, you know and there's places uh you know i lived in england for a while and dealt with national health there also a wonderful system also really frustrating at times so there's so many uh, layers of that process too or hassles that people have with insurance say it can really color someone's medical or healing experience just from the mood or pall that casts over the whole event yeah and I think that's a, also to another reminder of why, you know, we have so many people that will often come in to see us in this level of real frustration because they've tried mm -hmm. so many other things that have been unsuccessful and they've had a great deal of difficulty getting access through the traditional healthcare portals um, to get appropriate care. And we're uh, a lot of times uh, a real different uh, experience for them, hopefully, in being able to have a better better access process. we are we just true yeah. i mean being on hold with a healthcare system is not a healing experience it doesn't yeah. engender a state of mind in your nervous system that's conducive to getting better we, we could probably figure that out we could probably at least have hold music that was a little more relaxing or something like that yeah i'll give them a spotify playlist they can put on hold there you go right
So, uh, well, what else do we need to, um, we're going to talk, do we kind of talk a bit about what we can do? And Yeah, like that's it's time for that. What can yeah. we do as hands-on practitioners? Mm-hmm. Um, should I riff on that? Yeah, I let's hear what too, you have to say. I got yeah. some thoughts. Uh, yeah. Of course, that's how I think about, okay, so what am I learning about this as a hands-on practitioner? And I really relate it to, say, the stages of inflammatory response, the inflammatory cycle. And we had a whole conversation with Neil quite a while back about those stages and how to work with them. But in this case, it's been a great map for me to understand what's going on in my own leg, but then also what I would use as a practitioner if I was dealing with a patient or client like me. And that first stage in an acute injury is really the protective stage. Mm-hmm. There's there are there's lots of pain typically. There's swelling. There is a feeling of instability. The nervous system is completely jacked up in a protective state to avoid movement, to avoid lots of things because the goal right there is really to protect the tissue, protect the damaged injury. And so there's also lots of protective immunological functions happening, lots of tissue destruction, even as, as damaged tissue is torn away or dissolved and removed from the area. And the, that hurts. Just the things, the enzymes and the signaling molecules and things like that that are used in that repair process sensitize the nerve endings and it hurts. Yeah. And so that's the acute phase. And that's, I'm moving out of that. Uh, it That can go on for a couple of weeks, but typically it's a few days mm-hmm. that that's going on. And during that time as hands-on therapists, like if someone, if I were to go to a hands-on therapist and I did get some work during this time, the goals that would help me as a client would be essentially calming my nervous system and normalizing the reactions that I'm having mm-hmm. to the pain in that local part of my leg. It's not to get in there and do cross fiber on that painful part yet. Mm-hmm. It's more like, how do I help my my client's whole body, whole being, whole nervous system deal with the fact that they've been injured and are in this protective state? Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, potential roles on tissue fluid movements, you know, yeah. reduction and things like that in terms of potential benefits of what we're doing here. That's a benefit. Yeah, for sure. Things that, and I did some uh, drainage type work just on my own leg as it would swell and stuff. And that was pretty fun to see the effect. So yeah, it, things to move fluids. Yep. I'm in for that. I'm, and I'm an amateur there. I'm a, you know, like an informed amateur playing with fluid type work because I'm interested in it, but it hasn't been my area of specialty over these years. But no, I think there's a role for that too, just thinking about moving the fluids in and out of that zone. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's also proprioceptive integration, like reintegrating that part of, of the, the injured part of the body with the whole brain picture or the whole body sense, because pain is a proprioceptive disruptor. It really overshadows all the other sensations and functions your brain has in terms of motor control and uh, pleasant touch. All those things get you know, basically cast in the shadow of this big painful event. Mm-hmm. So yep. to bring those forwards again with touch, like somewhere else that feels good, mm-hmm. is really salutary. Really just helps normalize and helps you just helps the person calm down and feel a lot better. To realize yep. that oh, the other leg actually still you know is there, still healthy, feeling still good. So just yep. bringing back that wholeness of that picture is really helpful too. Yeah. What are your thoughts? You mentioned something a moment ago about you know probably feeling it was not really appropriate at the early stages. There yeah. was something like deep friction massage. Do you think right. there is a place or a role for that um, at uh-huh. any point later in the process? Or what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Probably phase three. Mm-hmm. So phase one is protection. Mm-hmm. And probably in phase three, we get to like the possibility for that. But phase two really is the repair phase. That's like, it starts within hours after an injury, but really is takes the main stage for say a week to a month or two or three after an injury like this, mm-hmm. where the, most of the functions that are going on are about repairing the tissue. Yeah. Uh, for, for tissue proliferation, the key, the starring role is probably the fibroblasts there, which are knitting, and they're also turning down inflammation amongst other things. But they play a role in actually re- the physical repair and rebuilding of structures. And that's still too early for cross-fiction, I think. Mm-hmm. It's a great time for movement because you want the new tissue to be mobile enough to slide. We're not trying to stretch it yet because it's so delicate, at least in my case, because it's crossing a major joint with lots of force on it. 
Mm-hmm. So we want sliding. We don't necessarily want stretching yet at that local part. What about the potential? And again, I think these are a lot of questions that have not been adequately answered by research uh-huh. yet. So we're we're right. all just to let everybody know we're speculating here. You're getting my opinion, right? You're That's right. right. Um, what about you know the potential role of of manual therapy, something like friction in reduction of adverse adhesion as those tissues are rebuilding, so that you yeah. get your proper degree of pliability, mobility, slide and glide, and don't overly bind down. I mean, that's of course been one of the the arguments against total sure. immobilization is that you bind stuff it down. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And you know, this is I talk about not being research backed. This is one of those. And it's not even something I'm recommending, but the thing we used to say, we used to hear as rolfing students was, uh, well, if you can catch it in the first hours before the inflammatory cycles have gotten too far, you can, in quotes, reorganize the fibers, uh, you know, move the tissues around in a way that gets them in a better arrangement. Mm-hmm. Now that's, I don't know if any research, it would be a hard thing to test. You need like yeah. double double injuries and do one and not the other, something like that. But that's certainly an interesting model. And that's some of the rationale behind old style Syriax work or different things where they're thinking of reorganizing fibers through through perturbation toward actually physically uh, cross-fibering them or doing different things to move them around. Yeah. Um, maybe, or but maybe not even grinding work like that. But yeah, there's a, I'm already sliding layers on my leg. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm already thinking layer functions and glide. And that's, yeah. that is more backed up by research that shows differences between painful and non-painful bodies to shows what is happening in the tissues that they're, and what is me- what's plausible in terms of mechanisms of change from body work. There's probably a lot of gliding we facilitate. There's probably very little actual fiber reorganization we facilitate. Yeah. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. I think there we don't have... Um, certainly as much um, ground swelling support for these ideas of fiber reorientation to way that I know I was taught and probably you were taught early mm-hmm. on about this is what we're doing with deep friction massage. But there have been a couple of studies that have also pointed to some potential physiological explanations also associated with increasing fibroblast proliferation because yes. of pressure and movement of yes. those tissues. Yes, and, and that might seem to me to be a more plausible explanation yeah. for why we do see oftentimes beneficial effects with those those type of treatments. Yeah, I'm all about that carefully, and that again, mm-hmm. that's a third phase consideration. So, like, let's say it's been a while. Uh, in my case, I, uh, it's going to be at least a couple months from everything I know and read and sense that there's going to be a place for more direct work. And there, and especially if there's still some sensitivity or pain going on, it might be unresolved inflammatory cycles. It might be Mm. essentially a chronic inflammatory state. And there, one thought is that we can reboot the cycle. We can start restart the cycle by by some cross fiber or some direct challenging work that stimulates fibroblast activity that gets the thing to... uh, Resolve. It's almost like your washer being stuck on the wash cycle. Where yeah. You just, you, pl- you push the button in, you turn it all the way around, you start it again, something like that. So the deep work can ma- maybe do that. That's a high risk maneuver because uh, if someone's dealing with a lot of inflammatory load or a lot of challenge, we don't want to necessarily stress their system out more in that way. Yeah. So a lot of considerations come into that, like medical uh, resilience overall of the person. Certainly emotional support, support for functions they need to do in their life before before I just get out the say the tools and start trying to stimulate fiberglass production. Yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. But there might be a place for that. Yeah. We'll see. I'll we'll see in my case if I get there. But right now, some gentle movement, some gent some nice touch to remind me that I have a whole body. Uh some uh sweet uh social media messages to remind me that I'm not alone. Uh, you know, all these things yeah. are like just the medicine I need right now. So all right. uh, I'm not ready for the the tools yet. We're all sending positive healing <laughs> energies your direction there. I blow them to the east from where I am. Okay. Nice. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, no, thanks for this conversation. And thanks for giving me a chance to think it through and talk through and share the, what you did, Whitney. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, anytime we have some sort of more realistic kinds of things like this, it gives a lot of context to a lot of what we are often learning 
with just what seems like content information uh, until we can find a way to apply it in real life situations. So it's always great to see a a real life uh, exploration to dig into that in greater detail there. So thank you for sharing your story and and letting us be a part of that with you. Well, thank you for listening. Mm. And it does, it is a funny edge because it's, um, because there are such more difficult things people deal with. It's a funny edge in myself to just to give it the time and space that it needs for myself, but then also to, to make it the focus. It, I, I, I walked that edge in myself of how much is too much as well. Yes. Yeah. And healing to, to do what I've done. Mm-hmm. Yes. Indeed. Is it time? Is it time for our closing sponsors? You think? Yeah, I think we will close that piece up there. So, who do we have today? Books of Discovery has been a part of massage and massage therapy education for over twenty years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say, "Learning adventures start here." They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. And you can check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. So thank you to uh, all of our sponsors once again, and thank you to you, the listeners, for hanging out with us today. Hope you got some good um, insights into knee things that are going on. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and any extras. That'll be over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. Until where can people find that for you? Advanced-trainings.com. And yeah, we'll put some of these images and diagrams and links to the back jam and sponsors and things like that there. We love your feedback. We love your questions. Go ahead and message us uh, on our email, a shared email at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or just look for us on social media under our names. Till Luca is my name and yours, Whitney? Uh, today it's Whitney Lowe and you can find us over there on social as well. You can also, if you would, rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help out other people find the show. You can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening on your favorite podcast app. And please do share the word and tell a friend, and we will look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Did you do that from memory? I didn't put that into the notes there. You just nope. Kinda... I quickly scrolled down because I saw I was absent, <laughs> and I thought, like, oh gosh, I bet that's somewhere on our script thing way Good down there. Save, so, man. I should have said, of course, yeah, man. It just came off the top of my head. <laughs> nice to talk with you, Eddie. Thank you. As always, sir. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>